Well, we've been looking at the last Sunday, the rapture, and this Sunday we've been talking about the tribulation. And the question, will the rapture be before the tribulation? Of course, we answered that this morning and want to continue to talk about that tonight, so we'll finish up with the notes on the back of your bulletin if you want to follow those along tonight. As we think about the verse there that uh, Brother David read tonight and Brother Craig read this morning, they both got to read the same verse, so they didn't have to be jealous of each other. And, uh, but Revelation chapter 4 verse 1 tells us about the rapture. And this, after this, I looked, and behold, a door was open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was, as it were, a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things to come, which must be hereafter. We're looking forward to that trumpet, aren't we? When he calls us to come up hither and to, to be with the Lord. And that'll be a wonderful, wonderful time for all of us. I want to just review for a moment of what we talked about this morning. We talked about the picture of the tribulation. The word tribulation is translated from the Greek word thlipsis, and it is a word that means the giant weight used to crush grain into flour. You think about, we think about a gristmill a lot of times in the grinding, but oftentimes they used a stone, a grind, a giant weight to, to crush the grain into flour. And the idea behind tribulation is that it is the utter crushing or pulverizing or grinding a substance into powder. And during the tribulation time, God is going to literally be grinding mankind, bringing them to, to some to repentance and some to rejection and rebellion against the Lord. Just as I said this morning, the sun, the same sun that, that hardens the clay, melts the butter, and it depends on the response of the person to that uh, tribulation that comes. And so, as we, thought, as we talked about the picture of the tribulation, we looked at the surprise of the tribulation, and we found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 1, the Bible says, But of the times and seasons, brethren, ye have no need that I write unto you, for yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. The day of the Lord includes everything from the rapture all the way through the tribulation and through the second coming and the millennial reign of Christ, and all of that is the day of the Lord. And, and the Bible says it comes like a thief in the night. It is, it is a, uh, an unexpected time and a surprising time that will take place. And then we talked about the severity of the tribulation. It will be severe. The Bible gives us many um, different people that talk about the tribulation. Moses called it the day of calamity. Zephaniah called it the day of the Lord's anger. Paul talked about the wrath to come, and John called it the hour of temptation. Daniel described it as a time of trouble such as there never was since there was a nation. Zephaniah said that day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of wastedness and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of the trumpet and alarm against the fenced cities and against the high towers. And the Lord Jesus Christ himself talked about the tribulation as being a time of terror and horror on this earth. He said in Matthew 4, verses 21 and 22, For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world till this time, nor known nor ever shall be. And except those days should be shortened, there should be no flesh saved. But for the elect's sake, 
those days shall be shortened. So it's going to be sudden. It's also going to be severe. There's going to be great tribulation. God's wrath will be poured out upon this earth in a great way. And then we talked about the purpose of the tribulation this morning. There were five things that were involved in the purpose of the tribulation. First of all, the tribulation will be to purify Israel. Israel, the Jewish nation, tested God's patience throughout many of the centuries in the past, and they turned away from the Lord over and over again. In fact, the Jewish people rejected the Lord Jesus Christ when He came. In John 1, in verse 11, it says, He came unto His own, but His own received Him not. And they rejected Him. The tribulation will be the fire that purifies the nation of Israel to burn out all the dross and the impurities. God's going to be dealing with Israel to bring Israel to the point in time when they acknowledge Jesus Christ as the true Messiah. And then the second purpose of the tribulation is to punish the sinners. So He's going to deal with the Jewish nation, then He's going to deal with the Gentiles, the unbelievers. The overall purpose of the tribulation is to execute God's wrath on those who oppose Him, those who have stood against Him, first the Jews and then the rebellious Gentiles. Paul wrote in Revelation 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. And then we said also the tribulation will prove God's power. In Revelation 6, all the way through chapter 18, you read of the various judgments that come. And just like Pharaoh mocked God and suffered the wrath of God with the plagues that came, so God will bring His judgment upon the nation of Israel and literally upon the whole world. And those especially who will be boasting of the Antichrist and worshiping Him, they will suffer the wrath of God. Revelation 13.4 says, And they worshiped the dragon which gave power unto the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast who is able to make war with him? And then in Revelation chapter 16, you read of God's judgment that comes upon them. And so the tribulation will prove God's power. Man will see the, the almighty power of almighty God in heaven. And then we said also the tribulation will prepare a martyred multitude for heaven. Revelation chapter 7 says there'll be a number, there'll be a multitude that cannot be numbered of those whose robes have been made white in the blood of the Lamb. That will be the great multitude of people who will not reject and rebel, but who will receive Christ. When they see the wrath poured out, they will yield and surrender to Him. They will turn their hearts towards the Lord. And then also the tribulation will prepare or it will proclaim Satan's demise. And we find in Revelation 12 and again in verse 20, or chapter 20, that Satan will be cast into the lake of fire and he will spend eternity there. The smoke of their torment will rise up forever and forever. Tonight I want to pick up with the third thing about the tribulation, and that is the perspectives on the tribulation. We talked about this last week a little bit, and so I'll just kind of summarize very quickly, but there are four perspectives particularly about the tribulation. First of all, there's the post-tribulation rapturist, those who believe that the tribulation will, the rapture will take place past, post, after the tribulation, or after the, you know, the, rap, the tribulation, then the rapture. They believe that it's going to take place after the uh, tribulation. They believe that Christians are going to be left here on this earth to go through the tribulation, and along with the unbelievers. 
And then there's the mid-tribulation raptures. Those are the, are the people who believe that halfway through, three and a half years through that seven-year period of God's judgment, the church is going to be raptured out. And so the Christians will escape the last three and a half years, but they'll have to go through the first three and a half years. Many believe that. And then there's the more recently has been, been promoted the pre-wrath rapture. And the pre-wrath rapture says that the rapture is going to take place during that second three and a half years, but it's not, it's not the halfway of the tribulation, it's the halfway of the, of the halfway, okay? Second half of the second half, and it'll be before the, the great wrath that comes. And then the final one is the pre-tribulation rapture, rapture, which we believe is the biblical interpretation, and that teaches that the rapture takes place before the tribulation. In other words, Christ comes back in the rapture, then there's seven years of tribulation, then he comes back to the earth and sets up his kingdom here on this earth. And I firmly believe that that's the accurate, um, that's the accurate perspective of the last day's events that are going to take place. The Bible gives to us at least five reasons why we can be assured as believers of God's protection from this coming outpouring of His wrath. God will protect us. He'll, he'll take us out before the tribulation. Five reasons I want to give to you tonight. First of all, our protection is affirmed by Christ's promise. It is affirmed by the promise of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. The clearest teaching on the believer's deliverance from the tribulation comes to us from the, the letter that Christ sent to the church in Asia Minor in the city of Philadelphia. And if you look at chapter, if you still have your place in Revelation 4, look back at chapter 3 and verse number 10. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 10. The Lord is writing to the church at Philadelphia. And listen to what he says there. He says, Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation. That's the same as the hour of tribulation. How do you know that? Because he says, Which shall become all the shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. He's going to protect them, he says, from the hour of temptation or the hour of tribulation. I want to think about that verse and look a little bit deeper into it as we take time tonight. As we look at this, you see the clear promise that God gave to His church. First of all, this promise is comprehensive. It is a comprehensive promise. The promise goes much further than just protecting us from the devastating misery and torment that's going to go on around us. Daniel chapter 3 gives us an example of this type of protection. You remember the story of the three Hebrew children, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were cast into the fiery furnace because they upheld their faith. They were faithful to God and honored God. And God kept them safe from the flames that roared about them. Now, this fire did not harm them, did it? They're in the fiery furnace, but we find that they were in the fire, but they walked through the fire. Jesus promises us that He's going to go even farther than that. We're not going to walk through the tribulation. He promises us that He's going to keep us from the hour of the tribulation. He's going to keep us from it. Prophetic scholar by the name of Mark Hitchcock wrote this. He said, the Lord's promise to keep His people not just from the tribulation, but from the hour of tribulation. God's people are exempt not just from the trials during the tribulation, but from the very tribulation itself. 
We are removed from the whole period of time, not just the trials of it. End of quote. Charles Riley gives a vivid illustration of that truth from a, a teacher's viewpoint. Listen to what he said. He said, as a teacher, I often give exams. Let's suppose I announce an exam will occur on such and such a day at the regular class time. Then suppose I say, I want to make a promise to students whose grade average thus far is an A. The promise is, those who have a grade, an A grade average, I will keep you from the exam. Now I could keep my promise, he said, to those A students this way. I would tell them to come to the exam, pass out the exam to everybody, and give the A students a sheet containing all the answers to the exam. They would take the exam, but in reality, they would be kept from the exam. They would live through the time of suffering, but not suffer the trial. That's the post-tribulationalism, protection while enduring. But if I said, he went on to say, if I said to the class, I'm giving an exam next week, I want to make a promise to all the A students, I will keep you from the hour of the exam. They would understand clearly that he was going to keep them from the hour of the test. Exempt them from being present during that particular hour when the test is given. That is the pre-tribulationalism that is the meaning of the promise in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 10. God keeps us from the hour. We don't come to it and go through it and he protects us. He keeps us from it. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 10 says, And to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. God knows that if he left his church here on this earth to go through the tribulation period, he certainly could protect us and would protect us from all harm, but we as believers, I think, would be deeply grieved by the dev devastation and the wrath and the judgment that's going on all around us. And therefore, God, in His love and His mercy, removes us from the scene entirely when the tribulation comes. We will not go through the tribulation because of His promise to His church. Secondly, our protection is in accord with biblical precedent. It's in accord or in line with biblical precedent, which, which, which examples that the Bible sets forth throughout. Throughout. throughout the Bible, you see God over and over protecting His people. He removes them prior to judgment and protects them against the evil surroundings. Enoch was transferred to heaven before the judgment of the flood. Noah and his family were safely onto the ark. They were in the ark and closed within the ark before the judgment came. Lot and his family were taken out of Sodom and Gomorrah before the judgment came that destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. The firstborn among the Egyptian children, or the Hebrew children in Egypt, they were sheltered from the blood of the Passover that was put on the doorpost and on the lintel. They were sheltered before the judgment of the firstborn of the Egyptians took place. In other words, they put the blood on the door, and then the angel came, and the blood that was not on the door of the Egyptians, their firstborn, was killed. And so God protected them. The Israelite spies, you remember the story of Jericho, they came and spied out the land, and they were safely delivered before the judgment came and before God's judgment fell on the city of Jericho. The apostle Peter 
holds up these incidents of God's protection for us as assurance that what he did for those heroes in the past, God will do for us today. If you'll turn back a few pages from Revelation, look at 2 Peter chapter 2 with me in verse number 4. 2 Peter chapter 2, and look at what he says there in verse number 4. 2 Peter 2 and verse 4, he says, For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them unto chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment, and spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an example unto those that after should live ungodly, and delivered just Lot, vexed with his filthy conversation of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelleth among them, in seeing and hearing vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. Notice verse 9. The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of, the, out of temptation and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. The Lord knoweth how to deliver the ungodly out of, the, out of temptation. That's talking about the tribulation. He delivers us from the tribulation and he reserves the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. It's going to be the lost. If the primary purpose of the tribulation is to purify the nation of Israel and to bring God's judgment on the Gentile unbelievers, then why in the world would the church have to go through that same judgment? Our sins have been forgiven. Our rebellion has been forgiven, and God has given us a, the wonderful privilege of being a part of His bride, and He's going to take us out of here before that judgment comes upon the earth. So it's easy for us to see the consistent pattern that's presented for us in the Bible with these examples that God gives to us. God rescues the righteous before He punishes the wicked. He allows the righteous and the wicked to live together in the world prior to the judgment, just as Jesus explained in the parable, you remember, of the farmer that allowed the tares to grow together with the wheat. But when the harvest time comes, the wheat was separated out before the tares were cast into the fire in Matthew chapter 13. After Paul explained the rapture in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and we talked about those verses this morning, he added this significant phrase at the end, telling us about the coming of the Lord. He said, therefore, comfort one another with these words. Could I say to you tonight, there would be no comfort to the words of the apostle Paul if the church was not removed before the tribulation and had to go through the tribulation? The only way the term comfort makes any sense is if the rapture takes place before the tribulation. The pre-tribulation perspective validates the logical purpose of the rapture. And then thirdly, our protection is apparent in the book of Revelation. It's apparent in the book of Revelation. Several passages throughout the Bible describe the events that occurred during the tribulation period. These described for us the, are described in the various writings of Old Testament prophets. And they're also described in the words of the Lord Jesus Christ himself in Matthew chapter 28. And in brief references throughout the Bible, but in the book of Revelation, the Bible describes the events of the tribulation in its greatest detail. You've probably heard all of your life that the book of Revelation is the most difficult and confusing book in the Bible. 
Could I tell you the opposite is just the truth? We tend to make it complex because we bring to our reading and studying of it a lot of competitive baggage that we hear from a lot of different theories and doctrines and distortions that are thrown at us by various interpreters. But the book becomes much simpler if you just let the book of Revelation interpret itself. It's like the backwoods man who purchased his first chainsaw. And after one day of wood cutting, he took the chainsaw back to the store and he complained that it was too hard to use and it would barely cut any wood at all. And the man who sold him the chainsaw said, well, tell me, what happened when you started the engine? Started the engine? What do you mean? Responded the, 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 uh, the man who had purchased it. He said, you mean you never turned the saw on? No wonder it was so hard to use. If you turn the engine on, it will do the work to cut the wood. The saw will do the work for you. And I believe that if we'll study the Revelation, the book of Revelation, it will interpret itself for us if we'll take time to look at it the way God has designed for it to be looked at. The first chapter of Revelation gives to us the outline for the entire book. At the beginning of the book, John the Apostle saw the vision of Christ, and he said in John 1 verse 19, Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. So here we have the outline, the three main headings for the book of Revelation. First of all, he said, write the things which thou hast seen. That's the first short section. It covers Revelation 1, chapter 1, verse 1 through verse 20. You have the record of the vision of John that he saw while on the Isle of Patmos. He was worshiping the Lord on the Lord's day when he heard the blast of a trumpet. And when he turned, he saw the glorious figure, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, which he then describes in magnificent detail for us. Christ spoke and explained the meaning of the symbols surrounding him and tells what they are. So he said to him, speak of the things which thou hast seen. John saw them. And then secondly, he said, you're to write about the things which are. Those are things which are right now, taking place right now. And that section includes Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3. It con contains the seven letters that were written to the seven churches. They were seven churches that were ex in existence at that time. I think they're also a picture of seven periods of time, and I think you have all seven churches in every period of time. But John serves as the primary leader of those churches, and he was exiled to the Isle of Patmos, and so as he writes, he's writing things which are, things which were taking place right then while he was writing. Each letter described the spiritual health of the given church, and then it was accompanied with commendations that the Lord gave, and sometimes reprimands and warnings and rebukes. He wrote about things which are. And then the third portion, he said, write the things which shall be hereafter. That picks up with Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1, the rapture of the church, and contains everything else through the end of the book. These chapters detail events that will take place in the future. In all, almost everything in Revelation 4 through 19 has to do with the tribulation. It describes in great detail the pouring out of God's wrath upon the earth and God's judgment that will take place upon Israel and upon the rebellious Gentiles. Most of this description occurs in three judgment accounts 
the seal judgments that you read about, which include the, the uh, famous four horsemen of the apocalypse. And then you have the trumpet judgments, and then you have the bowl judgments. And these sequences project horrifying pictures of the tribulation that we talked about this morning. And they're sort of in a, in a sp split screen technique. It tells us a little bit about what's going on in heaven as these judgments take place, and then it tells us about what's taking place, the devastating result of them here on earth. Included in this third and final section are the final victory of the Lord Jesus Christ over Satan, and we've looked at that already. Do you know what's conspicuously absent during these chapters from chapter 4 through 19? There's not one mention of of the church. When God talks about the tribulation, no mention is made about the church. Why? Because the church is not there during that time. It's no longer on earth. It's been raptured and then the tribulation and then coming back at the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have been removed. There's no account of the church's role during the tribulation because the church has no role during the tribulation. As we noticed earlier, the tribulation period marks the final application of God's wrath on Israel's transgression. And God's wrath is reserved for the apostate nation of Israel, those that He nurtured and those that He cherished, and yet they departed from Him and rebelled against Him over and over again. The tribulation, you might say, is essentially a family matter between Israel and God. And the faithful church does not need to be here during that time. According to Mark Hitchcock in his book entitled The End, he said, and I quote, The whole tribulation period is the outpouring of God's wrath. This requires that Christ's bride be exempt from this entire time of trouble, not just some part of it. He adds, what is it about the tribulation that necessitates our absence from this time? The tribulation is the product of God's wrath upon wickedness. The book of Revelation clearly refers to God's wrath at least seven times. The wrath of God commences with the first seal in Revelation 6 and continues all the way until the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in Revelation 19, verses 11 through 21, end of quote. In none of this are we saying that the church is exempt or that God's people on earth for are exempt from suffering and persecution. We do go through suffering, don't we? Throughout our life, persecution for the Christian has been pervasive throughout church history. Much of the New Testament is comprised of warnings of suffering and encouragements for those of us who are going through suffering. Paul summed it up in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12. He said, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall what? Suffer persecution. God says there's going to be some persecution for the Christian. Not the tribulation, but in our lives we're going to face persecution. Jesus told the disciples in John 16, He said, These things have I spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. We can be of good cheer. We're going to go through some struggles. We'll have some problems. We'll have some difficulties in life but we have the Lord to help us as we go through them. What a privilege it is. Yet, in all of the New Testament, there's not one single statement that tells us as Christians, that warns us 
that we're going to go through the Great Tribulation. There's not one single verse that tells us how to prepare for the Great Tribulation. If we are to go through the wrath that will devastate the earth during that seven-year period of time, isn't it strange that God never gave us one bit of information or encouragement or warning or destruction or instruction about our preparing for the tribulation? The reason for that omission is very, very clear, and that is the church will not be present at all when the tribulation comes. And then there's a fourth thing. Our protection is assured by God's love. God will protect us. Paul assured his readers that once they become Christians, they have no need, no further need to fear the judgment of God. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 1, it says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. We're not going to go through the condemnation and the judgment of the tribulation. Part of the purpose of the tribulation is for God to execute His wrath upon those who have rejected Him. If you're saved, you have not rejected Him, so you're not going to go through that wrath of those who rejected Him. By simple logic, we can see that Christians are are spared the tribulation. What would be the point of having us go through it if we've already been forgiven of our sin? When we turn to the Lord, we trust Him as our Lord and Savior, we have had our sins forgiven, and we are exempt from the whole purpose of the horrific event that takes place called the tribulation. Our rebellion has been forgiven. There's no need for us to be purged of it or be punished for it. The Bible's filled with Scripture telling us that God's wrath is strictly reserved for those who do not follow Him. Look with me, if you will, at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 and 5. Ephesians chapter 2, and beginning in verse number 3. Listen to what the Bible says. It says, among whom also we all had our conversation in time past, in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Talking about before we got saved. But, verse 4 says, but God. What two amazing words, but God. But God, who is rich in mercy, for His great love wherewith He loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, By grace are ye saved. Thank God we're no no longer a part of of the children of wrath. We're a part of the children of God and the family of God. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 9, he says, Much more than being now justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. I realize he's talking about the wrath of eternal judgment in hell forever and ever, but he's also talking about us being saved from the wrath of God during the tribulation period. No believer has to ever face the wrath of God because Jesus took that wrath on the cross at Calvary for us and we never have to face it. We will not go through the tribulation. When God put Jesus on the cross, He exacted from Him the full penalty for our sin. We have nothing left to pay. We sing the song, Jesus paid it all. We don't have to pay for our sin. We don't have to go through God's judgment. It's been paid for by Jesus on the cross. We've been cleansed by the blood, and we will not be put through the tribulation. Tribulation is a time of punitive judgment from God. If we were to go through the, the tribulation period, 
It would mean that the price that the Lord Jesus Christ paid for you and me on the cross at Calvary was not enough. I'm glad we can still sing that song, Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. We do not need to make any additional payment. We don't have to have something else to pay going through the tribulation, facing the wrath of God. We don't have to do that because it's all been paid for us on the cross at Calvary. If we were to go through the tribulation, the whole idea would negate the sufficiency of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross for our sins. Did the cross save us from wrath or not? Did it save us from condemnation or not? Did it save us from the judgment of God or not? Certainly we would all agree it did. Amen. J.F. Stromberg Beck wrote these words, and I quote, he says, One is forced to ask, how could the Lamb of God die and rise again to save the church from wrath, and then allow her to pass through the wrath that He shall pour upon those who reject Him? Such inconsistency might be possible in the thinking of men, but not in the acts of the Son of God. End of quote. And he was exactly right. The tribulation is for those who are in darkness, not for those of us who are in light. Paul put it this way in 1 Thessalonians 5, 9. He says, For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. And the salvation that Paul spoke about in that particular verse is not talking about our salvation from sin, but salvation and being delivered from the tribulation period by translation. We're translated into heaven to be with the Lord. Dr. John Walford adds this, he said, and I quote, Paul is, is expressively saying that our appointment is to be caught up to be with Christ. The appointment of the world is for the day of the Lord, the day of wrath. One cannot keep both of these appointments. And I say amen to that. The unsaved will keep the appointment of the day of wrath. They'll go through the tribulation. The saved will keep the appointment with Christ when we are raptured out of this earth and gone, taken to heaven to be with the Lord. The pre-tribulation rapture. And then the last protection, our protection is accomplished by Christ's sacrifice. It's accomplished by Christ's sacrifice. What qualifies us to be spared the trauma of the tribulation period? We can say, well, as a Christian, following Christ. Or we would say, submitting our life to Him and trusting Him as our Savior qualifies us. And all of that is true, but it's not the whole story. You see, the complete picture, we need to look beyond these truths where we find a, a central truth that is much deeper than that. If trusting Christ as our Savior qualifies us for the rapture, we need to, need, we need to know what the meaning is of the call of Christ as our Savior. What is it about Christ being our Savior that exempts us from the tribulation? You see, Christ as our Savior was our substitute. And on the cross, He paid an enormous price for our sin to save us from the eternal destiny of hell forever and forever. And we accept that gift of eternal life by putting our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we make that commitment, He accepts us as His own. And what a privilege it is to know that we belong to Him.
Thank God we've been saved. Amen? But don't forget what that means. He's our Savior. He saved us from the wrath to come. He saved us from eternal hell, but He also saved us from the wrath that's going to come on this earth, on the nation of Israel, and on the Gentile rejectors and rebellion of, the Lord, of those who rebelled against the Lord Jesus Christ. Pastor Steve Cole tells a story about a man by the name of Joe. By his own admission, he was, Joe was not a very religious man. He drank too much, and any is too much. He gambled, he swore like a sailor, he lied, he cheated his way through life to get whatever he wanted. God was not a part of his thoughts or part of his life at all. Joe finally retired and he, he relished the prospect of retiring and spending the rest of his life fishing at the lake. But a persistent pain in his stomach drove him to the doctor. His greatest fear was that this pain, whatever it was, would cause him to have to stop drinking. But the doctor's report was even worse. It was cancer, and it had spread beyond control in his body. The doctor gave him less than six months to live. While Joe was in a hospital, his pastor dropped by to see him, and he talked to him about eternity. And for the first time in his life, Joe listened. A long-suppressed truth in the heart of Joe was awakened that day, convicting him that he had squandered his entire life on selfish pursuits. He trembled knowing that he would soon face God's judgment. But the pastor explained to Joe how God had paid the price for his sin on the cross at Calvary, and on the basis of the full payment of Jesus Christ, he offered forgiveness of his sins and eternal life if Joe would just simply receive it. Joe gladly received the gift of salvation, and just a short while later died peacefully. Joe's case is what we commonly call deathbed repentance. It's not the most noble way, nor is it the safest way to come to Christ. But I'm glad to say that God in His infinite love desires to have all of us with Him for all of eternity. And He accepts, he accepts even those who come to Him at the last minute. Amen? I have a, a brother who's a pastor out in Virginia. His father-in-law was an alcoholic. And he was in the hospital dying, and my brother and sister-in-law went to the hospital. It was on a Wednesday night before church. They had witnessed to him many times. And they went by before church to talk to him one more time, and he was pretty much in a coma and not responsive at all. And as they left and on the way to church, they prayed. And I think the people at church that night prayed that God would give them one more opportunity to share the gospel. And after church, they went back to the hospital and he was alert and awake, and my brother Dan shared the gospel, and he prayed with him and trusted Christ as his Savior. And later that night, I believe it was, he died and slipped out into eternity. It was a deathbed repentance, but God still saved him at the last minute. The thief on the cross, God heard his prayer, didn't he? This day thou shalt be with me in paradise. In the parable of the workers in the vineyard, the master, if you remember, paid the workers who had come the last hour of the day the same amount as he did those who came the first hour of the day. I'm glad that 
our God gives us better than what we deserve. Amen. No matter when we get saved, it's more than what we ever deserve. He's a merciful God. He says, 2 Peter 3 verse 9 says, He's long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He doesn't want anybody to die and spend eternity in hell. He wants everybody to spend eternity within Him in heaven. But He does not force Himself on us, does He? The choice is ours. We can say yes. We can invite Him. And the important thing to note is that Joe came to Christ because he saw the signs that the end for him was near. And deathbed repentance, though it was, he did the wise thing. He acted on what he knew and took Christ as his Savior. It was late, but it was not too late. But I tell you tonight, the time is coming when it will be too late. When the tribulation arrives, God's people are taken to heaven and the lost are left behind and the door will close on those that have heard the gospel and rejected it. It's important for us to make sure now, while the door is still open, that we know Christ as our Savior. And those of us who know Him, we ought to thank Him and praise Him that He saved us from the wrath of eternity and hell forever but He's also saved us from the wrath of the tribulation period. And I don't know what you think about it, but I think we're getting pretty close to that time. It's late, but it's not too late. If you've never trusted Christ, it's not too late. If you've trusted Him, then we ought to be doing everything we can to get our loved ones saved. We ought to be doing everything we can to reach our friends, to share the gospel with those around us, we don't want to go to heaven alone, amen? We want to take other people with us. There's a popular song, a gospel song that we used to sing a lot of times that said, Must I go an empty-handed, such to meet my Savior so, not one soul with which to greet Him, must I empty-handed go? What are we doing? It's getting late, isn't it? It's not too late, but it's late. Let's do our best to help people prepare to trust Christ as their Savior, to live for the Lord, and to be ready. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the wonderful promises in your word that very clearly explain to us that you've saved us from the wrath to come. We thank you for it. Thank you that our Savior took that wrath for us on the cross at Calvary. That your sacrifice, the sacrifice of your Son on the cross, was sufficient to save us from the wrath of hell and to save us from the wrath of the tribulation. Thank you that we have no need of going through that judgment on the unrighteous and unbeliever because we've settled that in our lives. Not because of anything we are or anything we've done, but because of Jesus Christ who in your love and in your mercy you sent to pay our sin debt. Lord, I pray that if there's one person here tonight that's not sure, that they'll settle it tonight before it is too late. Before the trumpet sounds and we're caught out of here, they'll have to go through those awful events of the tribulation. How sad it would be to find ourselves left behind and face all of the wrath of God because we wouldn't 
say yes to you. We wouldn't surrender our life to you. Help us to know for certain that our sins are forgiven and we're on our way to heaven. And those of us who know the Savior, Lord, help us to do our part. Help us to be faithful to warn people. Help us to understand that it's late, but it's not too late. May we do our part to get others in before it is too late. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.